When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. TGIF, it is the TGIF version of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Ed Harrison here for Real Vision, and I have the distinct pleasure of talking to Real Vision co-founder and CEO, Rob Powell, from Little Cayman this time. I Rob. am back in Little Cayman for a week, so I'm back to the famous backdrop. The pool, the cue ball hasn't moved, but tonight I've got friends coming over. That pool table is going to get used. <laughs> good. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see you back in uh, Little Cayman. It's good. Uh, things, are, things are back to normal if we can have that. Uh, that that's yes, a great thing. Back, unfortunately, back to Grand Cayman on Thursday, but my whole office setup from there is, is just finalized. So I'll be filming from my office next time you see me. So there'll be a whole different backdrop than the office at home as opposed to the office for Real Vision. Well, you know, Rao, I want to pick your brain on what's going on in the markets right now. You know, economic data, markets. You know, I have three things that are on my mind. I'm thinking about, you know, the jobs numbers in the U.S. I'm thinking about uh, what the hell is going on in India and, and Asia with the coronavirus. I'm also thinking about uh, the German carbon emissions. Let's take them one at a time. Uh, jobs. Uh, we had a horrible number. I mean, it was well below expectations. I think people were expecting a million jobs added in the U.S. in April. We got something in the 200,000 range, negative uh, revisions on, on, on total for the two previous months. What do you make of all that? My view for a long time is that the worst part of this recovery is going to be jobs. I think there are certain industries that will not be rehiring jobs again. And I talked about this in the past, the similarity between England back in the late 70s, early 80s, losing its shipbuilding, its automotive, its steel industry, um, and its coal industry all at the same time, gave a rigidity to the unemployment that never really went away until those people left the labor force entirely. And I think we're going to see the same. I think the labor force participation rate over time is going to fall. That being said, people are still getting stimulus payments. So obviously, a lot of people won't go back to work. So these are noisy numbers, um, and it's complicated. Um, I think stripping out some of that, the perverse incentives to not go back to work, the numbers, I think, over time will not be as good as people expect. And the key to this is the central banks, particularly the Fed, made it absolutely clear that almost their number one mandate right now is employment. And oh, yeah. so that's why the markets, gold, crypto, everything went, okay, this is good. Bonds did nothing because they're like, we can't really make head or tail of this. And we know that nothing is really going to change here. But everybody else thought, well, monetary and fiscal stimulus, not going away. 
Yeah, you know, I think that's interesting. That's exactly where I wanted to go because that dichotomy is interesting for me. You know, I think that we went to 146 on the 10 year, just, I mean, mostly because of short covering, I, I figure, uh, for, for the 146. But we ended the day on the 10 year U.S. Treasury at 157.4. Basically, it went nowhere. It went up, you know, one basis point. Even though what you just said was is, is that now we know that the Fed is on hold with a number like this and all the other asset markets are going up as if they're looking at the denominator, uh, you know, as opposed to the numerator. What, what's going on? Why is crypto, why is gold doing something and bonds are doing absolutely nothing? Bonds doing nothing. I don't know. Bonds usually I'd say are the truth. So they're basically saying there was not enough va informational value within that to change the bond market. I, the economy is not as hot as people think. That's what the bond market said. It's backed off. You know, it's been backing off for two months now. It's not really doing a lot. It's saying the economy's good, but it's not rip-roaring inflation. Um, on the other side, what the equity market is saying is, well, there's no reason for the Fed to slow down. So therefore, the devaluation of the denominator is ongoing. Hence why every fixed asset went up in price today. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it, it's, uh, th there's nothing impeding equities at this point from the Fed's perspective when you see a number like that. No, I mean, what? I mean, you've got to be honest. What is impeding equities apart from it's expensive? There is, there is simply nothing to stop this. We're early cycle. The Fed are in no danger of raising rates or even tapering yet. Might they slow down their pace of purchasing by the end of the year? Maybe, but we've got to get through the end of the year first. You know, like you and I were chatting with Darius Dale on, on um, Twitter earlier. You know, he's thinking that, and I think a few people on Real Vision have come on, Felix Zulaf, and said, listen, the second half of the year is not going to be as good as people think. And I, I kind of agree with that. So therefore, the talk even of the central banks slowing down their rate of purchasing I think is premature. The Bank of England talked about it today as well, that they might. But again, let's wait and see. They have, they've barely opened up. So they don't have enough informational value to do that yet. So I think it's the unemployment issue that's the big issue for them. And that's going to take a while before they know, can that clear or do we have structural problems? Right. You know, not only does it take a while for them to know that in developed economies that are opening up, like the US and the UK, but everyone else is behind. So you got the U.S. and the U.K., Israel, countries like that, that have been heavily vaccinated. Uh, they're opening up. They're waiting for the data. But then you have Europe, which is still in the throes of vaccination. And then you have countries like India, which is absolutely getting killed by uh, coronavirus cases. And, you know, right before we, did we, we came on, I was reading uh, the GMI report from April. And of course, you were looking a month ago at what was going on in India, and you said, this looks to be a problem. How, how do you see it now in India versus how you saw it then? It looked to be a problem then. Now it is a problem. Yeah, and it's not going to stop. I mean, the Indians do not have the ability yet to scale vaccines to 1.3 billion people in any meaningful rate to deal with this. Now, they will figure it out. But they've got a, a lot of deaths 
and a lot of problems to come and a lot of economic dislocations, politically, it's going to be really hard for them to try and lock down because they had a pretty severe lockdown. You know, my cousins are in India. I mean, they've had some pretty severe lockdowns. And now it's becoming people are locking themselves away because of fear and others have to expose themselves to the virus because there is no government support for all of these small businesses of which it's the bulk of India's economy. The little shops um, have to stay in business. So it's this is going to get really bad. And this was in the beginning. I, the, there were two countries I really well, three places I really feared for this virus. One was India, one was Brazil, and the other was was Africa. Africa has done a better job. Um, a there's probably disease resilience because of the amount of of diseases that Africans have to deal with on a on a more frequent basis. In India, it's the proximity of people to each other and the inability to create the infrastructure to deal with this. I mean, it's it's almost impossible without putting military in the streets. And, you know, nobody really wants that. So I was always worried about this. And here's the worst case scenario. And uh, Remy and I pegged it in, um, in, in GMI a long time ago to say it was the opening for Diwali that was spreading the start of this wave. And it was exactly right. Everybody who made these kind of mistakes for the big religious festivals, we're seeing it again in the Middle East. It's Ramadan. Everybody's got together. Everybody's having dinner together. And what we're going to see is like we saw last year, another post-Ramadan spike. And we'll see that across many of these Middle Eastern countries. It's hard. It's hard because, you know, people have had enough. But the problem is, is the virus never has enough. The only way of stopping it is you either, you either get to herd immunity, of which nobody's got to, regardless of the narrative, the herd immunity, we've never seen that rate of virus get anywhere. So then the only way of reaching, um, reaching herd immunity is vaccination. And the poorer the country, the harder it is to get the vaccine. And the weird thing about India is they make half the bloody vaccines, because that right. is the kind of world center of cheap drug manufacturing. But, you know, it's even still, even if they can make all the vaccine, Rolling it out, anybody who's been to India knows how difficult that would be to roll out. They'll get there. Um, and I think it'll be, a, by the end of it, I think it'll be a very good positive because they'll figure out how to organize large groups of society at the same time. You know, this is a country that's digitizing. This is a country that is rapidly modernizing. And something like this will be a milestone in how they organize a large and complex society. It's, I can always count on you to look at the positive and negative situations. So that's always good to hear. But, you know, um, let me because uh, when we talk about the va the vaccine, we talk about coronavirus, it becomes a political football. But, you know, what I'm interested in is because you were predicting what came uh, is your prediction uh, credibility. Uh, I want you know, because first of all, you, you predicted that this would happen. Secondly, there's also the possibility that this spreads to the rest of Asia. I want to know uh, how concerned are you about that? And what does that mean economically in terms of exactly what we were talking about before? We were talking about, you know, the developed economies. Actually, it's not going to be as great in the second half as people think. But then we have coronavirus in Asia and we have these supply chain disruptions. What happens there? Well, Luckily for the world, India is a relatively closed economy in terms of goods and um, services. They are less closed in terms of uh, electronics and well, not electronics, um, kind of software and other stuff. So I'm not sure 
what this means. The question is, is do we get variants? Now, what we notice that every country where has had one of these large secondary outbreaks, they've tended to create variants. So what variants are going to come and where are they going to go to? The movement of people from India, mainly, once you, you know, close the borders to the US and the UK, is really going to be the Middle East. So there's mm. a huge number of Indians traveling between Abu Dhabi, Dubai, um, Saudi. So, you know, and the Middle East is already, I think, in the midst of another acceleration. So I think that's not good. Um, what does that mean for world? Well, I, I don't know, but at the margin, it just keeps it slower than it should do. And if there is a variant that comes out and spreads, okay, then we've got another issue. You know, 1.3 billion people rapidly spreading a virus throughout the country, the probability of a mutation is pretty high. Um, if one of those mutations ends up being vaccine, um, you know, is able to overcome the vaccine, then we've got a global problem again. Who knows? Everything has a probability in this. None of us can, can assess it. We just have to watch. Right. So, I mean, at the margin, what you're talking about is the reflation trade being dialed back. I mean, both from a, uh, a developed economy perspective and from a global perspective. Yes. I mean, look, most of Europe is still basically in lockdown. You know, I've been on numerous calls with friends in Germany. They're all shutting their houses. I mean, that's one of the world's the third, fourth biggest economy in the world is basically in lockdown still. I mean, that hasn't stopped yet. So, you know, again, we have a slightly US-centric view because we're all in the Western Hemisphere. The UK has just started reopening. Everybody else is still struggling. You know, speaking to friends in Spain, they can't go out in the evening. You know, this, we're a long way before opening up fully. And as you said, it's a phase thing. We've got Asia, we've got South America. They've both got problems. Let's see what that, how that develops because everybody's called an end to this has been wrong every time they've called an end to it. And actually, the rate of growth has remained in that relatively exponential path, although the rates of change in countries with higher vaccine rates have gone down. And that is dependent on the fact that no mutation overcomes the vaccine. If they do, we're back to square one again. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, we, we won't be back to square one. Yeah. I mean, ho I mean yeah, ho hopefully. But we just don't know. We don't right. know because some of these mutations, as we know, the Brazilian variation, the South African variant, these are virulent. They, they, uh, R naught is much higher. You know, there's all sorts of problems. Some are more deadly. You know, different mutations have different features as the virus, you know, as ever, as viruses are clever things. They adapt and they survive. That's their job. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this. The third piece of information that I was talking about at the top was Germany. And I'm looking at the FT version of, of this article. Uh, basically, what happened is is the uh, the German Constitutional Court said, hang on, we know that you guys want to get green, but we don't like what you're doing. This is, listen to this. This is what the Constitutional Court said. It said, we, you are placing too great a responsibility for reducing carbon emissions on future generations. That's an interesting uh um, you know, play. So what basically the Germans had to go back and do was do more carbon emission reduction now as opposed to later. So they in 2030, they went from 55 percent to 65 percent. Uh, I'm looking at uh, some more. Uh, they're looking at 88 percent by 2040. And, uh, you know, it, it, you so, know, basically it's more, more yes. carbon emission so, reduction. So well, I, I did, what do you make of that? 
I did three pieces on this carbon, uh, the carbon trade in Europe and how it's, it's a tradable investable position and it's actually one of the best trades in the world. And the, I think it was Lawson Steele talked about this, and I think Pierre Andran did as well, that it was likely to go from, what they're trying to do is, I think it's versus 1990 levels of emissions. They want to get to 55%, and there was a likelihood that it was going to go to 65. I think it's going to get European adoption. So what that's doing is basically speeding up. And one of the reasons being is that EU carbon tr uh, cap and trade system, the EU ETS, is actually very powerful and working extremely well because it's forcing the price up of carbon, which is forcing the dirtier polluters to shut down coal power plants and stuff like that. So it's actually doing its job very well. So they're seeing the opportunity to kind of press that. What it also means, however, that the likelihood is that the price of carbon goes up even more than people expect. So it's already up 55% this year. Um, you know, and I identified it earlier in the year as one of the best trades in the world. It's been a very low volatility, straight line up. Um, and I think it continues because Europe, there was another article, I think it was in the FT, not sure, yesterday, that the European governments are loving this because as part of this whole system, they get paid for the credits that get sold in revenues. So they're getting kind of free tax revenues out of this too. So in a time when every government needs money, they're getting money from it. The EU is getting to green up the, the economy. The businesses, they're, they're dealing with it. You know, I spoke to the, to the global head of innovation for uh, Volkswagen today um, for the Exponential Age series. You know, and they're all cool with this. They understand where this is going and what their role is to play in it. And you know, the rate of change that it's forcing across industries, the car industry, for example, or the power industry, is unbelievable. You know, uh, I have so many places that I want to go with that. Uh, but you slipped in a, a little uh, thing there that I have to address immediately. You said for this exponential age series that we're doing, you kind of just like slipped that in there on the sly. Uh, that's that's a big, you know, that's a big thing. Uh, talk to me about that. So I have been developing a thesis, which is a big macro change. And I think many people have seen have seen their emails and on Twitter, this kind of outline of my change of thinking that we are about, whilst we've been focused on so many of the big negatives that remain, debt, demographics, deflation, all of those things, and inflation and denominators falling and all of that mess, there's also something offsetting it, which is we're about to enter or we have entered a probably a 10-year, maybe 20-year period of the most concentrated technological change in all history of mankind. Sounds hyperbolic, it's actually not. So this is everything from the connecting of everybody on the planet via 5G, 6G, and, um, and uh, satellite to data, through to the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, cryptocurrencies and digital assets, through to uh, genetic vaccines and genetic sciences, along with autonomous vehicles, electrovoltaic, the complete rewriting of how, the, how electricity works and gets distributed and stored, along with distributed computing power and a bunch of other things all at the same time. And these are not you know, these kind of VC tech ideas that are coming out in 10 years' time. These are going at scale and are all about to hit network adoption, so i.e. 
apply Metcalfe's law to them, and we'll see exponential change in all of this. And one of them at the center of this is the car industry. That car industry was a linear business. You would make incremental improvements to engine technology, tire technology, brake technology, and it was an incremental amount of car sales. That has all changed. Cars are about to go exponential. And anybody who advances in technology in autonomous vehicles or um, battery technology or other parts of the EV revolution, including the Internet of Things, the connectivity of all vehicles and computing power, all of that means that the entire vehicle fleet of the entire world is going to get replaced in 20 year, over 20 years. And that's what the EU is telling you. They want to speed that up. You know, and as I said, I spoke to the head of innovation at VW, and it's at every level, this industry is reinventing itself. So it's going from being a linear industry to going to be an exponential industry. Amazing. And there'll be some winners and some losers in that. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, and so this is a series of uh, that that we at Real Vision are putting out over a week, two week period. Uh, I know that you and I, we actually spoke, I think it was on Wednesday, and that interview's coming out uh, to start it all off. Yeah, so the idea is, you know, you and I had a good chat for an hour and a half, maybe, I think, about this, about how to frame this and why and what and what it means. And the idea is I've then gone on to interview a whole bunch of interesting people to explore this topic from different angles, to get everybody else on the same page. And I'm going through this learning as well, and everybody will come with me on it. And, you know, you're doing some of the interviews. I think Jack's doing some interviews. We've got some other people doing interviews for us. And the whole lot is actually going to be threading a meta-narrative together about, okay, if Ralph's right, what are all of these things? Or what are some of these things? And what does that look like to us? What does it mean? Um, and I think what we're going to discover is that we're going to go into a world where instead of wanting to buy put options, we want to buy call options. Um, and that's something that the crypto industry taught me as well, is once you go into an industry with network adoption, it's all about the call option. Well, you know, let me, let's use that as a, as a segue into, um, into the exponential age, because as soon as you start talking about Germany, uh, cars, you start talking about uh, uh, carbon credits, immediately you think copper, okay? Now, copper is a commodity that's mean reverting. So when you tell me uh, we're thinking about puts, yeah, uh, copper is at, you know, at highs, you want to think about the puts. But in the exponential age of thinking, maybe I should be thinking about calls. Yes, the question is within this, it's not a temporary rise in, in demand for copper. It's a total shift. So we had... One total shift, which was the urbanization of China, which was the from 2000 to 2008, uh, that drove copper exponentially. It was up like 8 or 10x, which is a lot. But now what we're talking about is copper is still the best conductive um, uh, metal on Earth. 
and it has so many uses in generating and storing and transferring electricity, if we're truly in an electron age where the capture of and transfer of electrons is actually what we do as opposed to fossil fuels, and that's even, you know, if you remember Bill Tye, somebody I've also spoken to for this new series, you know, he called, you know, the electro dollar was the idea that he had, is if that is the case, then we're going to go through a global demand shift for copper. And copper's been in a bear market for a significant period of time. So there's not enough copper we can get out of the ground fast enough. So we're going to be in a supply shortage of copper for, you know, another five years, maybe longer. Now, you're right. It is mean reverting, but mean reverting to what I don't know. Um, because the, the demand is not going away, how much increase in supply of copper can there be? Because there have not been any major new finds in copper for, um, for a long, long time. In fact, the number of new finds of copper are where they were about 100 years ago. So we are pretty restricted in this. So it's both a mean reverting asset that's undergoing an exponential change currently. Um, so And that probably goes on for five years. So fascinating. You know, you know, this relates to one of the questions that actually it's the first question that we got as we started out. Um, uh, Louis G, he's asking here, my question for Rao, how do we retail investors get exposure to exponential age investments outside of crypto? And before you answer, Rao, let me tell you that when I was reading your GMI pieces, this is the line that stuck out for me when I think about the question. Uh, what stuck out for me was when you said hold not trade to make the big bucks. Uh, maybe you can address his question and that statement and the sa well, at the same time. Crypto teaches you, or the price of Amazon, or the price of Facebook, or the price of Tesla, or the price of, and we'll talk about Tesla in a bit as well. Um, what it taught you is that the volatility is actually skewed to the upside, but it feels scary to the downside. Um, Bitcoin has a, let's assume a hundred, a, a, potential of losing 100%, which it doesn't. But let's assume it did. It's it's performing at 200% a year. So you've got a 2 for one risk-reward assuming total calamity. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's what exponential assets do. So what you need to do is set it and forget it and hold it. So you need to be able to size it in the right way and hold it. So, you know, copper, very volatile. You'll have 40% gut checks, but it's likely to go higher. Same with the carbon credits. Um, I think same with some of the car companies. Um, but, you know, one of the really interesting ones, the easiest way, this is a contentious one. And when I write this and I get a barrage of hate for some I, I, unknown reason, is actually the person who saw this earlier than anybody else is Kathy Woods. So ARK and her funds, but just take the big ARK Invest fund, that is basically this thesis. And I didn't realize that until I'd actually written the thesis that looks at her stuff, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's the same thing. So right now, everyone says, well, it's, it's a liquid, and they're, they're, she's going to have to liquidate the whole thing, and, and it's terrible, and she's manipulating her own prices, and I get it. You can fight it, but the exponential trend is probably bigger. So it's selling off now, and I think it sells off further. Um, and so, you know, I'm looking for it to come down, uh, to probably get down to somewhere between around 80 bucks. Who knows? I haven't bought any yet. But it's one of these things where 
I just I let her just manage that position or some of it. We can all trade around it. But and there's another vehicle. But there's the Bailey Gifford Fund in the UK. There's a few of these around that are really, really interesting um, because they capture this. Will they pick all the right stocks? Of course not. Will they capture the theme in a way that allows people to participate easily? Um, probably. So that's my view on this is we can layer in some themes, so cryptocurrencies, and there's different ways of layering some cryptocurrencies. There's stuff like you could trade copper if you're less comfortable, but you're copper comfortable with the commodity angle of it. I think that works pretty well. I think the EU carbon credits is basically a commodity trade. So if you're happy with that and you understand the thesis, that's a pretty straightforward trade. Something like ARK is interesting, or you can broaden out to countries like India, where there is wholesale change happening. Uh, there's countries like Saudi Arabia, less easy to invest in, but potentially the rewards are very big as Saudi transitions its economy. So India and Saudi, very interesting to me. Um, you know, there's companies like Reliance in India that I've talked about many times that are kind of, you know, I think that's a trillion dollar company to come out of Asia. I think the first trillion dollar company outside of China for Asia will be a Reliance. Um, so, you know, that opens it up for different people. So there's lots of ways to play this. It's really early. This is not a trade. You just, it's not like I did with the Bitcoin. It's like, go now, let's get it. This is going to be layering and over time, choosing the right instruments, setting it for getting it, and just letting it work over time as the magic of compounding an exponential trend starts to take hold. Well, let me uh, play devil's advocate here for a second. Let's say that uh, I don't buy any of that. I, I, I think that this is a bubble, uh, and I'm a skeptic, okay? Um, the question that I would ask is, what do I do then? And I'll, I'll preface this before you answer by saying, I saw an interview with Kathy Wood. Uh, when she was talking to, to Steve Forbes, uh, this was back in 2016, when she said diversification is king for traditional portfolio strategies, whether you're talking value or growth. And she said the question is, can you generate excess returns through adding a layer, let's call it five, six percent of non-index, uh, uncorrelated assets, uh, and you can actually increase your return and lower your risk at the same time. And the answer, of course, is yes. We know this from David Swenson, who unfortunately just passed away of cancer, but he did this with private equity assets. Uh, she's saying you can do this as well with her assets. Maybe that's the strategy for those who are skeptics. Um, it's firstly, so they've both done different things, but they both use the same thing, which is time horizon. They extended the time horizon. If you hear Kathy Wood's talk, she was talking today, it's a five-year time horizon to start seeing the crystallization, which is exactly in the middle of my exponential age, where we should start to see this exponential move in full flow. So she's using time horizon and then using the stocks that aren't in indices that exhibit this kind of Metcalfe's law adoption effect, right? That should give you a huge kicker in terms of your returns. David Swenson did something very different. He took time horizon and traded liquidity for it. So he said, I will take, and Kathy Wood is doing this somewhat, I will take illiquid assets with a longer time horizon. And because less money is crowded in the space, I should be able to generate higher alpha. And he proved it very well. You know, everything from lumber to, as you said, private equity. Um, in Kathy Wood's case, 
there is a downside to the liquidity because she is an open vehicle. So, you know, maybe she has to liquidate some of her liquidity. And I, I get that. That's what the market's nervous of. I think it's a long way from here if that were the case to cause that problem. But that's that's the trade-off here. So she's going to, don't forget, you know, Yale, I don't know what they produce, but call it 10% a year. I mean, she's trying to produce 15 to 20% a year. So if you if you go back to my big piece I did about the exponential age in terms of cryptocurrency, 15% is the hurdle we need to reach to not right. get poorer in, in kind of fiat money terms. So if Kathy's aiming at doing 15% a year, and today she's like, well, with prices here, the returns, the, her expected returns, and she could be dead wrong, are 20 to 25% a year. I kind of agree. So that looks like an opportunity to beat um, the, the hurdle. I don't think David Swenson's strategy any longer can beat the hurdle rate. Um, so he would have to go further out the risk curve if he were alive today, and that would probably include cryptocurrencies and um, uh, VC, where you can beat it because technological change is so rapid. Uh, High-tech VC tends to produce some of these style returns of excess of 20%. You know, when you when you talk about Tesla being included in the S and P five hundred, what do you think that does to the concept that you are now an uncorrelated asset? You know, I'm thinking about it in terms of phases. You know, think about the Fang M, right? They used to be large companies that were growth stocks. Now they're basically the market. When you look at their betas, their betas are pretty much the market beta. They're, you know, every single one of the Fang M has a beta around one. Uh, then you look at Tesla. Now they're part of the S and P 500, not uncorrelated anymore. Is so, that when does that happen for crypto? So uh, does it happen for crypto? So firstly, you need to realize that the reason they are is because they're so dominant. So if you look at the value versus growth, that's where you see the difference. Why? All of these stocks exhibit network effects. We all thought, and I was a big part of this, back in the early 2000s and the mid-2000s, that Amazon was massively overpriced. The narrative at the time was, it's worth more than all of the booksellers added together. Because it was never a book company. It was a network. And the network ended up making it the largest e-commerce platform in the world. And now it's become the largest logistics platform in the world. Right? What is this worth? I don't know. But if it continues to innovate and create value out of its network, which started as books, but it was the network that had value because it gave it the opportunity, it's endless, right? So that chart follows a logarithmic, beautiful channel, as do all of the fangs, because they're all exhibiting the same thing. And Tesla, the reality is, and I was speaking to the, the VW uh, innovation guy today, he made it pretty clear my hypothesis is probably correct is the reason Tesla looks like it looks in price and valuation is it's not a car company. If they are furthest down the AI, uh, sorry, um, the autonomous vehicle route, then they're worth a trillion dollars, at least. Uh, and the, the, the head of VW was saying exactly this. It's like there are so many groundbreaking technologies in the car industry right now and nobody can combine together. They all have to compete. So it's going to be an extraordinary situation that's going underway. Now, many of the legacy car industry have gone through the worst part of the expenditure curve. 
So they've been, they've got a traditional business that they need to keep alive, but they need to spend so much money in R&D. VW are just starting to come through the other side, and I expect several others will. So suddenly we'll see a race in the car industry is who's going to get to these technologies and whose technology is going to create the most network effects. It's fascinating. So that whole FANG thing is actually the reason they're so dominant is because these are the largest networks on earth. I'm going to add another piece of the picture into this is I don't think people have got their heads around the fact that Facebook is about to create a platform with money. So that's going to add cryptocurrency, which is a stable coin, DM, and give it to three and a half billion people in one go, the ability to trade it, right? That is the largest network of money ever invented in all of history, all in one go. Now, let's assume 50% of people uptake it in the next five years. It still dwarfs the number of people in the, in the cryptocurrency space, which is currently about 126 million people. By my projections, we get to about a billion people using crypto rails by about 2024, which is the still at currently the fastest rate of adoption of any technology in all recorded history. It's growing at 113% a year in terms of number of users versus 63% at the peak of the internet. So we've got this massive thing, and then you're going to throw in the biggest network in the world and say, oh, we're going to give them crypto rails and wallets as well. And then the central bank digital currencies are going to come as well and throw the rest on. So the speed of which these networks are evolving, and then what happens to, what does that do to Amazon and its ability to create its own currency and its own, these networks just get bigger, faster, and we can't get our heads around this. It all looks like a bubble. We've underpriced all of it all the way. Well, you know, when you talk about networks, immediately the first thing I go to is Ethereum versus Bitcoin. I know this is going to, people are going to hate this, but, you know, uh, uh, let's be honest. Uh, Ethereum, network effect wise, shit is happening in that space, okay? Uh, faster than it was in the Bitcoin space. So that's telling you something. Yes. Yeah, so when I look at the um, number of wallet addresses, active wallet addresses in, in Ethereum and match them when Bitcoin was at the same phase, the actual speed of accumulation of wallet addresses in Ethereum is twice as fast. So it is getting network effects faster. The number of developers on the platform is miles more than the Bitcoin network. The number of applications is miles more. That doesn't mean Bitcoin is dead or there's anything else. It's serving a different purpose, and that's okay. And it will have some of the attributes of Ethereum, and that's okay. But the facts are the, um, the number of active addresses in Bitcoin is growing at 50% a year. I mean, that's huge. Ethereum is growing at 100% a year. And the entire space is growing at 113% a year. So... Um, Ethereum is basically doubling in its network effects versus Bitcoin, but arguably the network effects are more because of all of the other app applications, the developers, and all the other parts of it. So, yeah, I mean, this is a beast that is, uh, that is being unleashed, and the market's just starting to realize how powerful this is, and could Ethereum take some of the moneyness of Bitcoin, the store of value, as it pivots this uh, 1559 token and the ETH 2.0 and the restricted supply and the and all of the other things, maybe the reduced gas prices. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you're going to see ETH outperform this whole cycle um, because of that. And again, the, 
we don't really know where this is all going. This argument's not going to be done in two years' time. There'll still be lots of protocols. There's another really super interesting protocol that's launching today, I think, called Definity. I don't own any of it, but this looks like it's absolutely monstrous. Um, all the kind of people who should be invested in it have been invested. It's been developing for five years, and they've launched it with applications and showcases and everything. I don't even know what this means, but it, I think it's coming out worth $100 billion. I mean, at launch. I mean, oh, my God. I mean, yeah, there's many of these things that are worth like $500 billion already, but this is huge, and it's come out of nowhere for, for most of us. Others obviously will know all about it. So we don't know where this is all going. I think of it as... We're not fighting for pieces of the pie. We're creating a whole new pie, and it's bigger and bigger. And all of this is seeing network adoption. A bunch of it won't, but even bloody Dogecoin is getting network adoption on one side. <laughs> We're not getting the other side yet. We're not getting many use cases. Um, you know, sure, the Dallas Mavericks will take it as payment, but what if somebody does use it as a network? for payment systems or builds another infrastructure on it, then you've got all of these millions of users using it and investing in it. So, you know, who the hell knows? All I know, it's going to happen fast. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Well, you know, when you talk about network effects, we we already <laughs> we went into the minefield of, of Bitcoin versus Ethereum. I want to go uh, to something that's more interesting uh, because you talked about it earlier, India. I'm thinking about emerging markets in general. So when we talk about the Fang M, we're talking about, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, uh, Netflix, although, I, you know, I don't know about Netflix in that uh, category, Google and Microsoft. You know, we see some of the Fang M in China, as you mentioned, Tencent, Ant, you know, uh, Alibaba. You mentioned one for India, but there are tons of potential uh, Fang M types network companies in the emerging markets. So when we look forward from an investing perspective, even from a traditional investing perspective, even if you're not looking at crypto, um, you know, someone asks this question here, in fact. Uh, the question, let me see if I can find it here, is if crypto is the best macro play, uh, should somehow crypto have an unexpected downturn for a long period of time, what is the second best asset to own macro speaking, and what would be the hedge for crypto? Okay, that's the question that Tom Tom asks. I'm actually, you know, shoehorning my my thinking into that question about emerging markets. Isn't that a play uh, uh, from what Tom Tom was saying? Let's say you don't like Ark Invest, right? Let's say you don't like that philosophy, because the U.S. seems to be the center of these network effects. But as you rightly say, the application of these network effects in emerging markets is exponential in its own way. So you will see this, and you've seen it in India with the adoption of digital technologies. And I'm going to interview somebody uh, in the next couple of weeks about uh, the digital India stuff and what's happening at the fintech layer, which is fascinating. I mean, right now in India, Google Pay, which we don't have, Google Pay means I can send Ed Harrison 10 bucks to your phone number. That's all I need. Because India has this UPI payments rail underneath that's instant payment system. So... Once you start multiplying the payments technologies in the fintech layers, you start to free up capital 
you're freeing up capital in a country like India where capital is scarce, and you give it access to the global capital markets via cryptocurrencies, and you start upgrading to 5G technologies and all of this, okay, you've got a game changer on your hands. You're going to change the trend rate of GDP growth. And that's not going to happen just to India. We've seen it in China. That will continue in China. Um, you know, China has figured this out a long time ago, and it's pretty much more advanced than anybody else in all of this. And then at the same time, we will see it spread across Africa, all emerging markets, and I think it will change, take a step change. I think countries like Saudi Arabia, which is basically driven by the dollar and oil, will see huge changes as it shifts towards uh, EV, renewable energy, technology. Now, are they going to be successful or not? I don't know. It's all about network effects. We'll see it to see whether they start attracting businesses and they can attract capital that attracts new opportunities and that that creates the network effect within the economy that Silicon Valley did in the US. So yes, I, I think you're dead right. You know, I want to uh, I, I want to uh, run something by you. Uh, it's it's a r relatively cynical uh, view. I think I, I I mentioned this to you earlier in, in uh, uh, a Zoom that we had. Um, this is about the EU. So going back to the German uh, carbon uh, thing, the, the, the German carbon thing is a great vehicle. Okay, the cynical view that I have is that you know the uh, the countries that are like, look, we want to get some deficit spending going here. Okay, we're Italy. We need some growth. Uh, this is the vehicle to make that happen. So when we talk about the exponential age, and we talk about copper, and we talk about carbon uh, uh, credits, and we talk about EVs, this is what is going to allow the EU to come together to create euro bonds, gre green euro bonds. And it's also going to give the ability of Italy to deficit spend in a way that doesn't count against its uh, you know, 3% uh, hurdle uh, for, for deficits. This is something that Dario Perkins was telling me about earlier, is, is that he thinks that that's an idea that could gain of, traction. Of course it is. But why are they doing it? They're able to spend just for the sake of spending. Why are they doing it? And the reason why they're doing it is their banks are broken. Right? This is why they're going to central bank digital currencies. They need to bypass the banking system. Europe has no growth. So it's got no growth, high debts, and a banking system that doesn't work. So you're going to have to somehow bypass the banking system, which is the central bank digital currencies, and then you'll need to retool the economy to, to something different that can generate higher growth. Because selling Louis Vuitton and German engineering is not going to cut it, because these are, generally speaking, um, we need step change industries that don't employ that as many people. They've got aging populations across Europe. So Vuitton's not going to cut it? <laughs> it's not going to cut it. It's a big bloody company, and Bernard Arnault is one of the richest men in the world, but still. So the electric age is where we're going into. That's the digital age, right? It's, it's, it's electricity capturing and transfer and attaching bytes to it. That, if you can spend money now to retool like you would do a factory to modern technology, which is retool all of Europe, you have a chance to generate enough growth to pay back some debts. But if you don't do it, so you have to take more debts to do it. So I get it. The bet's a mess. It's not easy. But if you don't do it, the economy's never going to transform itself. And you're stuck forever. 
So I kind of feel like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, but at least one of them has a call option attached. The, anything else doesn't have a call option. Most of the other outcomes have put options. Right. And, you know, that's why I think about Italy. You know, I feel as if Mario Draghi's uh, smart enough to get that. You know, he's the guy, he's at the head of the government. He used to be the ECB uh, central banker. Uh, he knows uh, where the bodies are buried. If if the EU has a chance of making that transition, shouldn't he be an operator who is uh, central to making that happen? Yes. I mean, look, as I said from the beginning, as soon as Christine Lagarde came in, it became pretty clear what's happening here. You know, there is. it seems to be an understanding within Europe that they're going to have to go down a different path. Now, people will hate it. People will love it. I, I don't care. That's where they're going. Again, I say this often on the daily briefing. It's not ours to judge it. Sure, if you if you happen to be an EU citizen and you want to vote, cast your vote. But you don't cast your vote in the market. What you do is look at the trend. The trend is to this massive retooling that is going to drive massive green technology innovation and green technology and electrovoltaic uptake across the world. So that's what we have to do. Um, we have to invest knowing that we've got this power behind us. You know, uh, I'm looking at the time, and uh, I, I I could talk for a, a long time. I, but I have at least two things that I want to get to, plus some questions before we end. I, I still want to go on Europe, because one question I have of my own is uh, and what I would call ant, uh, regulation. You know, when we when I talked to you about the EM, uh, the new EM, Fang M, I, I didn't ask you about the European ones, right? Uh, Europe is a complete developed market of the size of the United States, yet immediately I went to emerging markets and didn't go to Europe. And we know that, you know, from a regulatory perspective, the Europeans are cracking down on U.S. tech. What's going to happen in Europe, do you think, uh, from a network effect capability, it, it, just in technology? So I think we've just talked about it. The the government's telling us what it's going to be, is if you want to get involved in green technology, Europe is where you're going to make your investments. Because there is money flowing into it from government and from the private sector and from mandates, ESG mandates. Right? So again, we market often discounts and goes, well, you know, nothing going on in Europe. They haven't invented Facebook, have they? No, but let's see how fast, look how fast Germany has adapted to renewables Per capita, it's way in advance of any country on earth, and Europe's way ahead. So if you think about that and the network effects of that, then the amount of capital that's pouring in into green technology, that is going to create huge investment and returns in Europe. Um, and market's not seeing that yet because it hasn't figured it out because it's too cynical. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense, I have to say, uh, for me. Um, let me uh, let's use uh, Europe as the launching pad for another thought here. Uh, for me, it's um, I was thinking about Eastern Germany, and I'm also thinking about the emerging markets. Eastern Germany, when they came together with West Germany, and they came together at a one for one, you know, Ostmark for Deutschmark uh, comparison. They thought, okay, these Germans, they know what they're doing. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get in there, everything will be fine. Then suddenly they looked and they saw. Uh, Eastern Germany, it was terrible, the infrastructure. They needed to spend money like you wouldn't believe to upgrade the infrastructure. And you know what happened? 
the infrastructure in Eastern Germany is in part better than the infrastructure in Western Germany. They leapfrogged uh, Western Germany as a result of what's going on there. So when you talk about network effects in India, I'm thinking about the fact that you look across places, Africa, you know, South America, India, fixed line uh, penetration, existing technological infrastructure is minuscule. And then you talk about satellites, 5G, 6G, suddenly you have a leapfrogging opportunity. Can you talk to that? Yeah, so India already has 120 mobile phones per 100 per people, right? It's got saturation already. And Mukesh Ambani, the owner of Reliance, did it with Geo. And not only did he did it with Geo, he figured out that he didn't have to lay any fixed cost infrastructure, no fixed line, no 2G. He went straight to 3G, and that meant he could give data away for free. So he gave data away for free to all Indians and took 30% of the entire market in a few short years. He then, as I've mentioned on the daily briefing before, it cost him $10 billion to do that, to completely insert himself. He then went to Silicon Valley and the Middle East and raised equity and paid back $10 billion faster than any other company in all recorded history did it. Um, and now he basically owns the digital infrastructure layer for the whole of India. Um, so yeah, these things, when they happen, they come fast. And if you don't have to lay landlines everywhere or power certain types of power cables or yes. build power plants because you could do solar in villages, you step change everything. So yeah, I, this is, it's game changing what's coming. So I've got two or three questions I want to end it off here with, Rao. Uh, the first question is a, a blast from the past. Uh, how do you see the retirement crisis fitting in with the exponential age? Yes, and I do. The retirement crisis concerned me massively because obviously the baby boomers are going to come out of the labor force and they are going to, A, not have enough savings and therefore also not consume a lot. That is there and that is still the case. The pension system hasn't yet figured out the fact that it needs to have a 15% hurdle rate and not a 5% hurdle rate that it's trying to work off. So everyone's going to be net poorer of the baby boomers. So, you know, it's hard. It's going to be hard for them. So, yes, some of them invest in riskier assets, but that's dangerous later in your cycle. I mean, I've talked about this. All that they can do really is hope that their kids do well. <laughs> um, and in an exponential age, the millennial kids and the Gen Zs should do pretty well. Um, but I, I know that sounds pretty bad, um, but it is what it is. Uh, what has also helped is that the millennials, because of COVID, have moved out of uh, the cities and bought houses in places where their parents had houses. So that's at least created a bid for housing for the baby boomers, because there was a big problem. There still remains a problem that baby boomers live in places that millennials didn't want to live. Um, right. So that is changing. So listen, in terms of the economy, I think the exponential age helps offset the negative aspects of the economy. They're both deflationary, so I don't think it generates inflation. The baby boomers, I don't think there's nothing going to be easy for them there. Um, at least the printing of money increases the price of normal equities roughly by the central bank balance sheet. So the S&P pretty much is in line. So they're not getting poorer, but they're certainly not getting richer. So now it looks like we can't really have a downside to equities that last because the central banks just print money and devalue the denominator. So I think what they've got is what they've got. And 
they'll have to manage around that. Um, I think the disaster scenario of them losing 50% of their wealth was proven to be a falsehood because the central bank changed that equation by saying that's not going to happen. We can't have an extended bear market. We'll just change the denominator to make all assets rise. So I think that helps. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's the fucking world we live in. It helps, but it doesn't get rid of the fact that they don't have enough money. And basically, the debasement of fiat currency is, is, is happening at 15% a year. So they're getting poorer by 15%. And maybe the assets in their portfolios overall, at best, are growing 5 or 6%. So they're still getting poorer. And you know that's not easy. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, you know, here's another question for you from Jeff on uh, I would call it the business cycle because you talked about the business cycle changing. Jeff is asking, is it possible that we could see another recession before or in the midst of the exponential age? Could it go through cycles over correction? Yes, we will have definitely recessions without question. What does it do to asset prices? That's the hard question to answer. Because in a recession, there is only one outcome, one, more printing of money. There's no interest rate cuts. There's no nothing else. It's more printing of money. And therefore, you're changing the value of the denominator. So even if equities fall like they did in the biggest recession in all history, which was last year, they fell for a month. That was it. And why? Because the central banks printed the largest amount of money in all recorded history. It wasn't liquidity that went into the equity. It was the change in the denominator that changed the price. So we're not going to see an extended bear market until either somebody is told, either the voters say, we don't want this any longer, and you have to change the policy, or something changes. And so in the meantime, people will eventually figure this out, and that migration across this new world of digital currencies and digital assets and other things will continue. And it'll go from a slow migration to the Serengeti stampede as everything moves across. Well, you know, I'm going to augment your view with my view on this, is because is I'm a fiscalist here. I'll, I'll call you looking at it from the monetary side. I'll look at it from the fiscal side. I think that when you look at the deficit spending, this is where the paradigm shift is coming. It's not just that they're printing money, they're uh, you know buying up assets, but uh, there's deficit spending. And when you think about uh, the deficit spending, and you think about the the monetary uh, you know printing of money, really this money is a claim on productive and financial assets. So it's in a sense. The uh, you know the state socializing losses, uh, buying up more of the productive assets, and therefore uh, creating a risk shift onto its balance sheet from uh, those people who you were talking about are negatively affected, the baby boomers. To me, that's essentially what the Japanese had been doing uh, with their deficit spending as well. Yes, and the risk shift means that the thing that adjusts is the kind of fiat valuation of their currency. And because everybody's doing it at the same time, it hides it. But here's a fascinating thing to end this daily briefing on. It might appear that I'm data fitting, but the guys at Nordia looked at the price of Swedish real estate, which has been doing this. They then went, huh, I wonder if RAL's right, and divided it by the Swedish central bank balance sheet. 
property prices were flat. So it tells you that that fiscal change and that transference of risk has an outcome, and it's the repricing or the debasement of the fiat value. That's not the dollar value, the euro value. It's the value of fiat overall against these fixed or relatively fixed assets. And to see that it worked perfectly in Sweden, and I've shown it works with almost everything I've found so far, any country that has printing has created the same outcome. By the way, it's the same with the Nikkei. When you look at the Nikkei, it's basically unchanged when you account for monetary printing. But they're even doing it even more extreme because they're actually buying the equities. But when you adjust for that, it's the same. So we're basically destroying currency. And I never thought I'd be the guy saying that because I was never that guy. Because I think most people said you destroy currency by creating CPI inflation and the value of the dollar collapses. But I'm like, well, how can the dollar collapse, the euro collapse, the yen collapse all at the same time? That don't make sense. But it kind of is because it's, the, it's this whole value of fiat. The trust in fiat is getting debased. And that's fascinating. Well, we're going to have to end it on that note, Raul. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to uh, what people think about uh, your exposition. Uh, as, and by the way, as the, uh, the uh, founder of GMI on Monday, uh, I think it's a worthy thing. I'll, I'll, put, I'll hype it up and, and, and say that everyone who's watching this should watch that as well. Yeah, and you know, I think you made the important point, as ever. This is not Real Vision's view of the world. We don't have a view on the world. It's my view. It's my view that I'm testing. It's my new framework, my new macro framework and hypothesis. First time I've changed it in 30 years. Um, you know, of my GMI members, it's probably been the best received piece of my entire 17 years of, of writing it. Um, and so I hope that people find it interesting and it gets them to think. The idea is I think there's a lot of people who are going to go through a, yeah, I've been thinking about this wrong. Right. Yes. Well, thanks a lot again. And uh, I'll see you again, hopefully next week. Yeah. Have a great weekend. I'm going to enjoy Little Cayman for the weekend before heading back to the big <laughs> island of Grand Cayman. Good. All right. See you all. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.